Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. I'm your host, Diana, and this week we're continuing our series on tourist season in Paris. With over 1% of the population of the Earth visiting each year, tourists have a broader impact on Paris than they do on just about anywhere else on Earth. Naturally, Visiting France, especially Paris, has acquired a certain cachet. To be in Paris means to be rich and idle and above all, fascinating. So this week, let's kick off our Christian Dior shoes, pour ourselves a glass of bubbly, and learn about one of the most iconic landmarks in history for the well-heeled traveler, the Hotel Ritz Paris and her bar. In 1921, a young Ernest Hemingway moved to Paris with a young wife, empty pockets, and a thirst for everything, up to and including life itself. After five years of low-paying journalism and hobnobbing with other American expats like Gertrude Stein and F. Scott Fitzgerald, Hemingway finally struck gold with the publication of The Sun Also Rises. With its publication came fame and fortune, and for Hemingway and his circle, there was only one way to celebrate and only one place worth doing so, the Hotel Ritz. When in Paris, Hemingway would later write, the only reason not to stay at the Ritz is if you can't afford it. Hemingway may not have been able to afford a room, but the hotel itself was far from the main attraction anyway. No, when Hemingway refers to the Ritz Hotel in Paris, he's referring to one place in particular, the bar. After 20 years of accommodating the whims of stylish Parisians, the Hotel Ritz knew just what was needed to attract the company and the cash of Paris's new wave of American expats. When Hemingway arrived in Paris, he wasn't just thirsty for good company and great art, the man was desperate for a drink. With prohibition kicking into gear across America, it was prime time to head across the Atlantic. In 1921, the Hotel Ritz added a new feature to its palace, the Bar Ritz. I'd like to imagine Ernest Hemingway sitting straight up in bed somewhere back in the United States saying, my time has come. To its thirstiest American clientele, the Hotel Ritz now offered an elegant bar, top-notch liquor, and of course, a master bartender. We don't know much about Frank Meyer's early life, except that he was born in Austria, he'd grown up in the United States, and he'd perfected the art of mixing cocktails at New York City's legendary Hoffman House Hotel. It was a bad time to be a bartender in the Prohibition-era United States, so I can only assume Frank Meyer jumped at the chance to tend bar at the finest hotel in the world. Originally, the bar went by the name Le Café Parisien, and it was reserved for male guests of the hotel only. 
but pretty soon, Caesar Ritz's own daughter-in-law staged a sit-in until management remembered the ladies, and soon enough, the Ritz bar became the center of the center of the universe. All the most beautiful, interesting, and wealthy men and women of Paris gathered around Frank Meyer's bar to sip exotic cocktails of his own invention, like a bee's knees, a rainbow, and some say the world's first Bloody Mary. That claim is controversial, though it's safe to say that wherever it was invented, a hungover Ernest Hemingway was somewhere nearby. Perhaps the most interesting thing about Frank Meyer's bar was how little time he spent behind it. As one historian wrote, he was the first head bartender to say that the role of the head bartender is not to be behind the bar, but in front of the bar as a host. Frank would greet his favorite customers at the door, he helped carry in their luggage, and he made sure they were well taken care of. By 1936, Frank released the legendary book, The Artistry of Mixing Drinks, now considered a classic. By the 1940s, he was an institution unto himself, with legions of fans like Hemingway who made the bars of the Hotel Ritz into their second, or third, or fourth homes. Frank was a legend. He was untouchable. And, as it turns out, he was the perfect spy. The Hotel Ritz contains a charming quirk. It's actually two hotels in one. The most famous half of the hotel was built in the 1700s and it faces the Place Vendôme. The second half of the hotel spits you out on the next street over, the glamorous Rue Cambon, home of luxury fashion houses including Chanel, whose designer lived on the top floor of the Hotel Ritz. It was this architectural detail which allowed the Hotel Ritz to survive its darkest hour, the occupation of Paris by the German army during World War II. The hotel management worked out a deal with the German army. Your officers can have the fancier half, with the rooms of the 18th century palace and a view of the plaza. Let us keep the back half open for civilians. That way, your soldiers, aka Nazis, can experience the glamour of running into movie stars and beautiful rich women. For the duration of World War II, the Hotel Ritz was one of the only places in Paris where the German army and the population it controlled rubbed elbows and shared bar stools, and often a lot more. During these years, the German officers became so used to the pampered treatment they received from the staff that they began letting down their guard around the help. Classic mistake. Just about everyone on the payroll of the Hotel Ritz was involved one way or another with the French resistance. This began with the managing director himself, whose wife helped to store refugees and resistance fighters in the built-in closets of the hotel's bedrooms. This participation in the resistance trickled down all the way to the kitchen staff, who ran their own information-sharing network without the rest of the staff's knowledge. But nobody had better access to better intelligence than the king of hospitality, everyone's best friend, Frank Meyer. Having been born in Austria, Frank spoke perfect German, yet he was also, secretly, 
half Jewish. The Gestapo kept Frank under close watch, but not close enough. When he wasn't busy overseeing the shaking and stirring, Frank helped forge passports for desperate people trying to flee the country. Surrounded by increasingly blotto officers, it didn't take long for Frank to figure out which officers would be assigned where and when, and Frank worked with the hotel's managing director, Claude, to convey this information to the right people in a code. Frank and Claude assigned a fruit or vegetable to each major figure in the German army, and they placed fake grocery orders to their contacts to let them know where everyone was headed. The Hotel Ritz's most famous wartime guest, the rotund Hermann Göring, was nicknamed, naturally, the Potato. Most importantly, Frank used his professional discretion to pass messages between two German officers staying at the hotel, Karl von Stuttmegel and Hans Spedel, the conspirators behind the July 20 plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Despite the failure of the plot and the excruciating end to most of the participants in the conspiracy, no one ever gave away Frank's secret. For the duration of the fighting in the world beyond the hotel walls, Frank Meyer remained at his post, dapper, discreet, and dangerous. Finally, on August 25, 1944, Allied forces swept into Paris to liberate the capital from German occupation. While General Leclerc marched down the Champs-Élysées, one lonely jeep careened down the side streets, driven by a wild-eyed driver on a mission. Ernest Hemingway was here to liberate the Ritz. Strolling through the door, as the deputy manager's wife recalls, he entered like a king. He was dressed in khaki, but his shirt was open on his bare chest. He had presence, the way people know Hemingway, but no chic. He also had a 9mm British submachine gun dangling around his neck, with rifles, grenades, and no fewer than 67 bottles of champagne waiting in the jeep. After doing a quick sweep of the halls and rooftops, Ernest Hemingway made his way home to the Ritz Bar. Little did he know, the joyous day was about to get better. We resisted the Germans, cried the hotel staff. We kept the best bottles from them. We saved the Cheval Blanc. Having successfully liberated the Hotel Ritz, Ernest Hemingway ordered no fewer than 73 martinis for his men, grabbed a few bottles of champagne from behind the bar, and headed upstairs for his favorite room in the hotel. Shortly after the war, Frank Meyer handed the reins over to his protege, Georges Scherer. There were very few growing pains. As Ernest Hemingway recalled, I had known George when he was 17, and the wisest boy of 17 I had ever known, and the fastest and the most skillful. In return, Schurer remembered, when Hemingway had come in with only the money for two drinks no oftener than once a month. With the Nazis vanquished, Paris was free, and the rest of the world couldn't wait to visit. For the next 40 years, George Sur was there to welcome them. Wearing a signature outfit of a fitted white jacket, gold suspenders gifted to him by Noel Coward, and ruby cufflinks from the Aga Khan, George Schur followed in his mentor's footsteps by spending his time serving his guests, not serving drinks. 
Having trained a fleet of the world's best bartenders to do all of the best mixing and pouring, Georges was free to focus on more important tasks. In those early days, Schur recalls, my clients began to discover that I was a comfortable ally to have for tackling the intricate problems that arise in Paris. For example, there was the Saturday night when, at nine o'clock, Cole Porter phoned me and asked whether I could find a grand piano for him and have it delivered to the home of an American millionaire. He had just that day completed the score for his newest show and he wanted to surprise the millionaire's guests by playing it for them. The piano had to be there before 10 o'clock. With pluck, know-how, a neighbor with musical tendencies, and some well-placed bribes to a bunch of local tough guys, that piano made its arrival on time. On the way out, says Georges, one of the mob confided to me, You know, Monsieur Georges, this is the first time I ever carried anything into a fancy joint like this. Frank Meyer's tendency to keep things close to his chest probably saved his life during World War II. But lucky for us, George Schur is not nearly so discreet about the shenanigans going on under his nose. For the 40 years he spent at the Bar Ritz from the 1920s to the 1960s, George saw it all, and he's not afraid to spill the beans. For example, there was the time F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald needed a taxi to take them down to Leave Harbor in time to catch their ship to the United States. George flagged down one of the Ritz's usual taxis, driven by a man named Charles. The drive to Leave took four hours. Charles wasn't seen again for another six months. When he finally returned to the hotel half a year later, Charles explained that F. Scott Fitzgerald, drunk on half a bottle of champagne, decided he didn't just need a driver to get from the hotel to the boat, he needed a driver to get from the boat to his home. So F. Scott, Zelda, Charles, and Charles's car were all hoisted on board, and Charles did indeed drive the sozzled Fitzgeralds all the way home. While the taxis carried hotel drunks off on madcap adventures, back inside, the Ritz bar carried on its usual grand tradition of well-refined chaos. Reminiscing back to his early apprenticeship days, Georges recalled, Paris in the 20s was free and easy. When Wooly Donahue of the Woolworth fortune came in with a puma on a leash, everyone greeted him as usual, trying not to make him self-conscious. Mr. Donahue ordered a drink at the bar, where several other clients perhaps moved away a bit too perceptibly, but it was a very well-behaved puma, and we always made him welcome. The puma wasn't the only animal prowling the halls of the Ritz. One guest regularly dined with his chow-chow dog, who was only allowed in the dining room because he arrived dressed in the appropriate dinner jacket, shirt, and tie, tailored to match those of his owner. Yet all these animal stories pale in comparison to my favorite longtime resident of the Ritz, Louisa, the Marquise Casati. One author describes her as, quote, staggeringly rich, famously extravagant, possibly unbalanced. Someone, please, etch that on my tombstone someday. The Marquise makes Lady Gaga look like Shirley Temple. She strolled through Paris, accompanied by gold-painted servants and white peacocks, or wearing a suit of armor, or wearing a dress covered in light bulbs powered by a generator. At night, the Marquise Cassati dressed only in furs and took her pets for a walk. 
two cheetahs on jewel-encrusted leashes. Back at the Hotel Ritz, the Marquise kept a boa constrictor which she painted gold and wore around her neck as a sort of living necklace for parties. Georges Schur remembers these days perhaps more vividly than he would like, as he had to provide the boa constrictors live rabbits at dinner time. Alas, after the passing of Charlie Ritz, son of the founder Caesar Ritz, in 1976, it looked as though a good thing may be coming to an end. When the Hotel Ritz originally opened in 1898, it was the height of fashion, the first hotel in the world to offer things like a bathroom for every bedroom, built-in closets, electric lights. Over the years, more luxuries were added to the hotel property. For example, after King Edward VII got stuck in a bathtub with a much younger lover, Caesar Ritz had king-sized bathtubs installed in every bathroom, just in case. Yet by the 1970s, all of these novelties were showing their age. Where was the swimming pool? Where were the televisions? Where was the modern air conditioning, for heaven's sake? All of a sudden, the Hotel Ritz found itself losing money for the first time in its nearly 100-year history. It was time for new blood and new money. Mohammed Al-Fayed, owner of Herod's department store, purchased the Hotel Ritz for a steal. He bought a hundred years of world history for $20 million, or, as we like to call it here in San Francisco, the price of a studio apartment. Right away, Fayad knew the aging beauty needed a facelift. A 10-year period of renovation began, while the hotel stayed open amidst a storm of thundering hammers. At last, the hotel had a pool. The beloved bar on the side of the hotel was named after its most famous patron, the Bar Hemingway. It did the trick for a while. The 80s and 90s saw the Hotel Ritz return to its former status with supermodels and celebrities packing the grand staircase. However, renovations can only go so deep while the hotel is still operating. There was still no air conditioning. Therefore, in 2012, Mr. Fayed took a radical step. For the first time in 114 years, the Hotel Ritz closed its doors. For two years, one of the most famous hotels in the world sat empty, while contractors rebuilt parts of the hotel from the ground up. Over 800 stonemasons, upholsterers, and woodcarvers spent those two years updating every nook and cranny of the storied hotel. As Fayed reportedly warned his chief architect, I want the Ritz to remain the best hotel in the world. If you fail, I'll kill you. Air conditioning was added at last. Wi-Fi cables were built into the walls, not stuffed clumsily under the carpets. TVs now turned into mirrors when not in use. Guest rooms were merged into suites. The ground floor windows? Bulletproof. A new tea salon made its debut, named after one of the hotel's most famous guests, Marcel Proust. An extra passageway was added underneath, as a bit of an underground secret entrance for famous celebrities who wanted to avoid the paparazzi who naturally lurked outside. And of course, it was time to preserve and restore the crown jewel, the Bar Hemingway. The heir of Frank Meyer and Georges Schur is Colin Field, head bartender at the Ritz. He assures us that the bar was barely touched, but, as I quote, 
The lighting is much better. All the better to see the delicious concoctions in front of you. On June 6, 2016, after two years of renovations, the Hotel Ritz Paris finally reopened its lavish doors to the world. Everything is like before, elegant, luxurious, and jaw-droppingly expensive. Bedrooms start at $1,200 a night. You're free to spend thousands of dollars testing each of the treatments at the world's only Chanel spa, spend just as much on dinner at the Michelin-starred restaurant, or head to the bar Hemingway to taste the world's most expensive cocktail, the Ritz Sidecar. A sidecar is simple enough. It's a classic mix of cognac, Cointreau, and lemon juice. The key is in the cognac. A Ritz Sidecar uses only 1865 champagne cognac, and even a wine dummy like me can appreciate why it has the price it does. The bottle is rare for two reasons. First, it predates the phylloxera epidemic which wiped out most French grapes and forced the wine industry to rely on grapes flown in from outside the country. No, the Ritz sidecar uses only the last true French wine for its cognac. But that's not all. As the showstopper element of the hotel's bar, this cognac has always been a precious commodity, and for this reason, in 1939, as the German occupiers first made their march towards Paris, an enterprising Frank Meyer gathered up his bottles of the 1865 Champagne Cognac and hid them underground in a secret cave. Now, anyone with Beyonce money to burn can enjoy this historic drink anytime for a mere $1,680. For the rest of us, while staying at the Ritz may be out of our reach, the pleasures of the Bar Hemingway are open to the public. For the price of a lousy dinner at a left bank tourist trap, you too could splurge on a drink at the most famous bar in the world. Sit on the historic bar stools which once held the rear ends of figures like Fitzgerald, Sophia Loren, and of course, Hemingway himself. Order Frank Meyer's most delicious creation, a bee's knees made with gin, honey, and lemon. Take in the surroundings, the lush carpets, the brass fixtures, the dapper bartender, the comfortable leather chairs. Admire the Hemingway memorabilia on the walls. As you sip your drink and relax into the splendor and history of it all, you may just hear the voice of Hemingway ring in your ears. Long dead though he may be, you're in exactly the kind of spot he'd like to haunt. After all, as Hemingway once wrote in his memoirs, when I dream of afterlife in heaven, the action always takes place in the Paris Ritz. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. For more information about the history of the Ritz Paris, including some fascinating photos, visit the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com. Meanwhile, on The Land of Desire's Facebook page, we've all been discussing our own tourist jaunts in France. Want to talk about your travels? Share your favorite photos from your trip? Are you headed to France soon and want some recommendations? Ask your fellow Facebook Francophiles. Also, did you know that The Land of Desire has its own guide to Paris? You can see my official 
recommendations for hotels, hostels, restaurants, and even tourist attractions at www.thelandofdesire.com Paris. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing your comments and travel tips. Until next time, au revoir!